So if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we are in a series of messages over the uh, New Testament letter to the Corinthians, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And the title of the series is United in Christ. And it is a message that we need to be encouraged by and to hear today as, uh, as a church family. And the title of our message today is, Which Culture? Corinthian Glory or Cruciformity? Which Culture? Corinthian Glory or Cruciformity? Let's talk about the word culture. Someone define culture as the way things are done around here. So culture is about the way things are done. Culture is about creating something that results in the way things are done. And as a result of what is created, it affects how people think and how people behave. And how people think and behave then reinforce what is created. So it's circular, isn't it? In a culture, we learn what is right and wrong and good and bad. So culture socializes us into what is considered proper behavior. And then proper behavior reinforces the culture. A culture is like an invisible yet influential person working behind the scenes to keep us aligned with what matters to the culture. And everyone lives in a culture. Everyone has a culture. Everyone. Actually, we live in several cultures. Uh, we have a culture at our jobs, don't we? Some of you live and work in very healthy work environments. Your culture is healthy. Others have very toxic environments. And it's very difficult and stressful. And even, even now, as you're thinking about going to work tomorrow, it just kind of it feels like acid in your stomach because you know what you're going to walk into. We have a culture at home. Uh, we have a culture as Americans. We have a culture as Midwest Americans. Uh, there is an urban culture, rural culture, university culture. We have cultures pertaining to our ethnicity. Uh, there is a culture that pertains to an ethnicity of a numerical majority. And then cultures that pertain to ethnicities of a numerical minority. Culture is about how we think and how we behave. And never underestimate the power of culture. Never underestimate the environment that you work in to gradually transform who you are. So when you choose to work in a certain company... You're turning yourself into the sort of person who works in that company. So, 
you know, living life in a pragmatic utilitarian manner turns you into a utilitarian pragmatist. And the, the how do I succeed question quickly eclipses the why am I doing this question. You see the effect of culture. How we think and how we behave. Our church is a culture. And I want us to look at some verses today in 1 Corinthians that talk about the kind of culture that God wants for us. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 18 to 31 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. I want you to be listening for two cultures in these verses. Two cultures. And God has a preferred culture. And I want you to hear that as well. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and uh, Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that at it, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. So did you hear the two cultures? They're competing cultures. They're mutually exclusive. One culture we'll call Corinthian glory. Corinthian glory. And the other culture we'll call cruciformity. Cruciformity. Cruci, cross. Formity, shaped. Cross-shaped. 
cruciformity. Corinthian glory, cruciformity. One culture divides. The other culture unites. One is full of pride. The other flourishes with humility. One is of earth, the other of heaven. One is demanding, the other is serving. One breeds entitlement, the other breeds gratitude. And one is temporary and fading, the other is eternal. Hmm. Corinthian glory, cruciformity. Now, as we look at these verses this morning, um, I, I want us to consider a claim, and then I want, us, I want us to consider proof for the claim. So, I want us to consider Paul's claim. I, I want us to see in these verses, and specifically verses 18 to 25, that Paul's claim that the culture of cruciformity is by far greater than the culture of Corinthian glory. I want to talk about that. And then I want us to consider the evidence, the proof that Paul offers for this claim. And that's what we'll see in verses 26 to 31. First the claim, then the evidence of the claim. The claim. The, the culture of cruciformity is greater than the culture of Corinthian glory. Now, you can expect that a claim of that nature in a church like this from a minister like me, you'd be, that's no real surprise to us, right? Of course, we would say at church, cruciformity is greater than Corinthian glory. But, but, but uh, you know, to say that the word of the cross is the power of God. Well, we can say that here, but I know that was not as appreciated in culture 2,000 years ago. I mean, we sing that hymn, I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Yet what is cherished to 21st century Christians in America was considered hideous to first century Romans. Listen, when the Roman Empire crucified someone, the executioners were granted full reign with no restrictions. Uh, crucifixion was legalized cruelty. State-sanctioned torture. And so some victims were crucified head down. Others were crucified in different postures. And the nails penetrated every conceivable part of the human body. The first century historian Josephus wrote about the siege of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. And he said that the Roman general Titus, the Roman general Titus who would later become emperor, he pitied the Jewish inhabitants who had surrendered when Jerusalem uh, was sacked by 
uh, the legions of Titus. He pitied them who surrendered, but he would not risk letting them go, and he would not waste his resources guarding them, so he let his soldiers crucify them up to 500 a day. And Josephus wrote, and I quote, Their number was so great, there was not enough room for the crosses and not enough crosses for the bodies. No, the first century Roman culture did not cherish the old rugged cross. And neither did Romans in the third century either. I want to show you, uh, graffito is what it's called. This dates to around A.D. 200. And it is the uh, graffito uh, showing a cartoonish figure worshiping a crucified man with the head of a beast of burden. So it clearly blasphemes the Lord. And the words uh, that are clarified here on the right side of the screen say, Alexamenos worships his God. And that's how Roman culture saw Christianity. Clearly blaspheming and mocking and and, uh, not in any way, shape, or form cherishing the cross. Marcus Fronto, who was an orator and the tutor to the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius, Marcus Fronto asserted, and I quote, the religion of the Christians is foolish inasmuch as they worship a crucified man and even the instrument itself of his punishment. They are said to worship the head of an ass and even the nature of their father. That that was how the Roman culture viewed Christianity. You see, The Romans cherished glory. And Roman Corinth was all about glory. They were glory hungry. That's why the Apostle Paul says in chapter 1 verse 20, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's talking about the culture of Corinthian glory. So, Corinth was this up-and-coming city in the Roman Empire. And the city of Corinth screamed glory. The city of Corinth screamed, look what man can do. Uh, Julius Caesar rebuilt Corinth after it had been a pile of rubble for about a hundred years. And he dedicated the city of Corinth to himself. (laughs) So imagine being emperor and saying, I would like to, what would I like to do? Huh? I'll build a city in honor of myself. And that, that literally the colony of Corinth in honor of Julius. That was the full name of Corinth. And it was this up-and-coming city. And it just screamed glory culture. When you walked into Corinth, it reminded you of Rome. Let's take a look at some more pictures of 
uh, ancient Corinth. So this is called the Lycaean Road, which would have been the uh, road that the Apostle Paul would have entered into this city. And uh, you'll notice that it's paved. So the paving is dated from the second half of the first century. So it's if Paul walked on that road, it would have been brand new because he came around the year uh, A.D. 50 or 51. You can see what's called the Acro-Corinth, that huge 2,000-foot-high uh, uh, mount uh, there in the background. But that was the main street. And you can see on the left lower corner of the screen, uh, you can see the gutters. Uh, you can see the curbs. Uh, it had paved robes. Uh, next picture, that was the water reservoir uh, where the Corinthians drew water uh, for sustenance in this city of 80 to 100,000. Let's see the next uh, picture. That and the next two pictures after this, uh, that's the temple of Octavia. So it was a temple that was uh, built in honor of uh, Julius Caesar's um, uh, relative Augustus Caesar, and Augustus Caesar's sister was Octavia, and so that temple was built in her honor. And let's see the next slide. That is a theater. You can see kind of the uh, round uh, curvature, and the next one is a larger amphitheater. And then the next is a uh, a smaller theater, it's called an, an, an Odeon, an Odeon, and that's, it's almost like a performing arts uh, center, and that's where famous speakers and orators would come to Corinth. Before there was such thing as Netflix, you would actually see live performances, and because they were in Greece, the birthplace of rhetoric, uh, Famous speakers and orators would make their way into Corinth. And in Paul's day, rhetoric and oratory and uh, the spoken word were as much a part of Corinthian culture uh, as uh, your baseball is to our culture. And it was like a performance. And public speakers in Corinth, would uh, they would come to town, but they typically would not come to town with a memorized speech and then just recite it. Instead, they would find out as much as they could about the city. They would size up the audience. They would look at the situation and then they would read the room and they would then prepare a uh, oratorical speech based on that. Uh, given this audience and this subject matter and this occasion, how can I achieve the desired result? And what was the result? Well, to please the crowd or to placate the crowd, to make you like me. Uh, and so you had to be able to think quickly on your feet, and you had to be well-read and well-educated, and it took quite a while to learn the skill of reading the crowd so that you could perform well. And, and back then, the relationship of a paying audience to the speaker would often resemble a tiger and its trainer. <laughs> And the trainer had to master the tiger's moods or become a victim to it. So, they didn't have something like this where they could go hide into. You were surrounded. 
And over the years, audiences became more sophisticated listeners. And they were merciless to an unprepared, ineffective speaker. Now, you may be asking, okay, what's with the history lesson, Pastor? Here it is. Imagine that kind of expectation seeping into a church service. See, that's what Corinthian glory was like. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That's what he's talking about. In other words, I didn't come sounding like one of your circuit speakers. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And yet the Corinthians criticized Paul for this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, Paul says, Well, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. They're talking about the Apostle Paul. It's not that Paul did not know how to speak like the best of the orators. It's that he chose not to speak that way, the way the Corinthians preferred, so that what Paul said would be taken for the substance. And I'm telling you, the Corinthians, they let him have it. Corinthian glory perverted preaching into a version of America's Got Talent. And instead of, let's discover what God's word has to say, it became, well, let's vote on who we like best to hear. And that's why 1 Corinthians 1.12 has this, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow, because they're buying into their culture. And when we buy into a culture of glory, which Paul describes as the wisdom of the world, we not so subtly announce, look what we can do. And look how well we can do it. And if you do more and try harder, maybe you can too. And the result, church family, is pride. And pride is what divided the Corinthian church. Pride, question, question for those of us who lead. Is pride rewarded where you work? Is the notion that the ends justifies the means valued at your job? Is I came, I saw, I conquered part of your culture? Is power through fear part of your culture? Is it? Well, here's what the commercials for Corinthian glory conveniently leave out. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Building a city like Corinth in an empire like Rome, it was an exhausting task. And, and one of two outcomes occur, and they're both bad. You either, A, fail to meet the demands of the culture and are crushed by it, or B, you succeed at building something that lasts for just a short time. 
Some of us are absolutely exhausted. And I confess I fight this too. You know, we're trying to build a legacy in Corinth, and it's exhausting. I mean, it's exhausting enough when there's no pandemic in a non-election year with no ethnic strife. However, there is a pandemic, and it is an election year, and there's been plenty of ethnic strife. And Paul's trying to tell us that our best efforts apart from God will never bring about the culture God desires. We cannot do God's work the world's ways. We cannot mingle cruciformity with Corinthian glory. They don't mix. And brothers and sisters, some of us are exhausted because because our mindset is this. And this is how sneaky Corinthian glory is. Corinthian glory puts us in a mindset where we think, well, okay, we're in this COVID wilderness... And Jesus is somewhere over in the promised land of post-COVID. And we just need to just kind of grunt it out and just keep walking to get to him. And if we persevere enough, then we'll have a story on the other side. We'll have a testimony or a talk. And we'll write books and host seminars on how we survived. And it'll be titled, the It's Not About Me tour and we'll go inspire a lot of people and with our do more try harder Corinthian glory culture and I can guarantee you that is not what the apostle Paul is saying here because the cross is not inspirational truth to assist you in your path to personal success the cross is not a vitamin uh, substitute the cross is its own path The cross is not salt and pepper seasoning for your own recipe of success. The cross is its own main course. And the culture of cruciformity proclaims Jesus is not over there. He's here. Right here in this with us. And he wants us with him in this on the cross. You want to glorify Christ? then you got to get on a cross. That's the offer. Let's not sugarcoat the gravity of this situation. This pandemic is a slow, crucifying experience. It's not a weekend snowstorm. It's a prolonged winter season next to another prolonged winter season. And I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to be negative. I'm trying to relate the brutal facts of our current reality. And the facts are these. This is hard. And Jesus is with us. And he will do his best work in this through us. I believe that. So our Lord says, I want you to daily take up your cross and follow me. And this truth can only be understood when it's activated in our lives. And so Paul stands not as an orator trying to read the room 
or persuade the crowd to kind of get you to like me. That's, Paul doesn't stand as an orator. Paul stands as a herald. Paul stands as an apostolic ambassador with a message that he has received from the high king. Much like Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses did not negotiate a release with Pharaoh. Moses said, Pharaoh, the Lord says Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go. End of discussion. And that's Paul. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified. That phrase is the grammatical center of verses 18 to 31. It's bullseye. It's the most important verse there in that paragraph. We preach Christ crucified. But think about that for a minute. Christ crucified. What an oxymoron. That's like saying fried ice. Uh, jumbo shrimp. I'd like some jumbo shrimp. Uh, this is an open secret. You know, our pastor, I like him. He's weirdly normal. Christ crucified. Christ. Christ. We hear that as a religious term, don't we? They heard that as a military term. Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the champion, the Augustus Caesar of Rome, the Alexander, the great of Greece, the Napoleon of France, the Eisenhower of World War II. In other words, Christ was a power term. Christ meant power, splendor, triumph. Israel was expecting a powerful military Messiah riding on a war horse at the head of an army that would crush the Roman Empire. And what did God send? Christ crucified. What an insult to Israel's national pride. How could God's Messiah end his life under the condemnation of his own people and even under the curse of God. And yet in God's wisdom, the restoration of all that is broken in our world comes through that hideous cross. Your sin and mine are piled on the crucified body of the king, our substitute to satisfy his own rule of law. That the, that the just justifies the unjust by taking on their sin. Listen, listen. Every sin is first vertical, no matter how thunderous the horizontal implications of it are. Every act of human evil committed against another human being begins with breaking our intimate vertical relationship with God. Every horizontal sin forgets his presence. Every sin quests for his throne. And every sin seeks to usurp the creator with some created idol. And you cannot repair what is broken horizontally without first repairing what's been broken vertically. And that's what the cross does. And that's why Paul repudiates those who demand signs as well as those who lean on their own cleverness. 
Jesus' enemies said, if you are the Christ, come down from the cross. And they spent his entire ministry trying to cleverly out-argue him. But Paul makes it clear, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Cruciformity is greater than Corinthian glory. That's the claim. That's the claim. Now then, the evidence for the claim is in verses 26 to 31. Do you see Paul's evidence? Do you see the proof that Paul makes? The proof that substantiates his point? Who's the proof? You are! Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God. Oh, some of the sweetest words in Scripture. But God. But God. But God what? But God what? Chose. How many times does that show up? Three times. You see it? But God chose. But God chose. But God chose. We love because he first loved us. We choose because he chose. And we call because he called us. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not. To bring to nothing things that are. And why? Why does God do it this way? So that no one can boast in the presence of God. Church family. Don't you know? God does not require entrance exams into his kingdom. He does not hold tryouts. He does not put people on a wait list. His choices are not based on our performance or skill or any of our foreseen works. Paul says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of yourselves or your wit or your cleverness. We've made it one more week because of him. We've persevered to the point of being here because of him. We will get through this because of him. Jesus is not over there. He's here. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, for I am with you. I am with you. Right now, right now, there is a contest of two puny competing worldviews. And one worldview says, you must be red. And the other worldview says, you must be blue. And I'm telling you that from a kingdom perspective, those are false choices. The real choices are Corinthian glory or cruciformity. Now, how do I know which culture is upon me? Oh, you just need to flip over to 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. Verses that were originally written, oh, not for marriage ceremonies, but for local church relationships. You remember, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Corinthian glory can never produce 
that. But the cross can. The cross has. Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And when that reality is embedded in our hearts, then humility takes over. And when it shows up in a community of the called out ones called the church, then the community outside that church looks at this community and they say, I want that, I want that. I, I, I wonder, I mean, I think the Corinthians just forgot how they first came to Christ. Their salvation did not come from their capital city. Their salvation came through the preaching of a Hebrew Pharisee, a Roman citizen. His own life had been radically transformed by Jesus himself. And while the Corinthians never laid eyes on Jesus of Nazareth, they experienced Jesus' life through the life of his ambassador, the Apostle Paul. And they saw Christ in Paul, and they said, I want that. That's what I want. And, and brothers and sisters who have been called out, who are ambassadors, those in your fear, sphere of influence who come to Christ will come because they see Christ's life in your life and they say, I want that. I want that. Wow, the, the God who changed you, I want that. I mean, think about our own calling here at Windsor Road. We, we have so many gifted people here in our church family, talented, skilled, highly intelligent. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to keep up with you. We are educationally diverse. We have brothers and sisters in our church family with secondary education, highly skilled, highly intelligent. We have brothers and sisters in our family with PhDs. We have skilled men and women in the trades, in medicine, in homemaking, in accountancy. We have accomplished business leaders, bankers, educators. We are good at what we do, but we're not that good. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose. And by grace through faith, we're in Christ Jesus. And when the community sees our culture of cruciform humility, when they hear us boast, not in ourselves, but in the Lord, and I'm telling you, they're attracted to Christ because they see Christ in us, the hope of glory. They say, I want that. You want that? Imagine a fashionable American business executive, a banker, a lawyer, a doctor, an educator who is escorted out of the city limits to a landfill, a dump. And there they stand before a post with a naked man with nails through his wrists. He's caked with blood. He's gasping for air. And you are told, this ma'am, this sir, this is your wisdom and your righteousness and your holiness and your redemption. Will you get on your knees and throw yourself onto him for mercy? Can you hear it? You want me to do what? Don't you see how I'm dressed? 
Don't you know who I am, where I work, where I live, what I drive, how much I make? And you think I need that bloody lump of flesh? What do you take me for? You see what the gospel does? God's way of salvation confronts human pride. And in his wisdom, God cuts off the way of pride and frustrates reliance on human power. And why? It's not because God hates us. It's because God hates pride. And when God puts a sign that says, road closed to pride, he's protecting us from hell. And when he reroutes us onto the Calvary road of humility and brokenness and love, it's there at the cross where we see true glory. It's there we see Jesus Christ, our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Jesus is keeping us together and Jesus will sustain us to the end. So do we encourage boasting in this church Yes, we do. Verse 31. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God be praised. Amen.